if you can create a standard around the notion of a cybersecurity rating, this is going to be bigger than a credit rating in the future because of this forced digitalization of business that we've seen that was just accelerated by COVID. The number one focus for us is our people. And the thinking, if we look after our people, they're going to look after our customers who will look after the company, and we're all going to do well. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, we're very excited to welcome Steve Harvey to the show. Steve is CEO of BitSight, the world's premier cybersecurity ratings platform. Using a data-driven, outside-in approach, BitSight provides continuous monitoring so companies, cyber insurers, governments, boards of directors, and other agencies can manage both third-party and first-party risk. BitSight was founded in 2011, and GGV led the company's Series C round in 2016. Steve joined as CEO more recently in early 2020 after nearly 13 years at Institutional Shareholder Services, or ISS where he served as the CRO and then COO. In just two short years under Steve's leadership, BitSight's grown rapidly, brought on an experienced senior management team, announced a $250 million strategic investment from credit giant Moody's. We're going to talk about that. And the future is certainly bright for the company. Steve's going to speak with us about the opportunities he sees with BitSight, his strategy for taking over an established company as CEO, and how working from home has exposed both new vulnerabilities and new insights for all of us. Steve, welcome to Founder Real Talk. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you. I'm very, very excited to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. So I wanted to start by asking you to take us back to the beginning of your career. You started off working in media sales, and then you moved into the risk management world, where you've been now for more than three decades, spending over 12 years at ISS. Curious, like how risk management translates into cybersecurity, which is now your world. Yeah, if you go back a bit further, it's interesting to think about how media sales translates into financial risk management, and that translates into into cybersecurity. There's one thing that, that's very consistent about the companies that I've worked for. They were all market leaders. So in media, it was the Wall Street Journal was looking at creating a global capability associated with obviously the, the very strong publication in the US. Risk Metrics was a spin out from JP Morgan that established the market for value at risk and assessing risk in complex portfolios of financial instruments. And ISS set the standard in governance and the recognition that a critical part of company valuation and direction is making sure that you have a high standard of governance. And in each case, the thing that was strikingly similar was market leader was the fact that there was a church and state between driving the business, but really protecting those precious assets that created value for the user of the platform. In the Wall Street Journal, it was content, the editorial standards. Risk metrics was the practices around and transparency around the methodology. And ISS was the policy and transparent policy approach. These were all content driven. And the same is true for BitSight. As you said, it's a rating platform. And the criticality for us is 
the quality, transparency, and the correlation between the rating and an actual risk and an outcome of a company that, that we're rating and making sure that in no situation are we ever prepared to compromise that approach. Got it. It makes sense. And that separation of church and state is is a line you've been walking, sounds like, for many years in your career. Certainly, it's an important one at BitSight. Understanding cybersecurity risk is becoming more mainstream. And I'm curious, you've now been at the helm here at BitSight for two years. Tell us a little bit about why that is and what you're seeing as the drivers in this market. When I was first introduced to BitSight, a light bulb went off. It was, okay, this is a company that is the leader. It's creating a standard. I get that. It's in a field where you have the rating, but there's all sorts of data exhaust, analytics, other capabilities that you can take to market from what you've collected and what you're observing. This notion of cybersecurity is becoming such a criticality for all of us, from governments to companies, commerce to individuals. And I was just struck by the idea, look, if you can create a standard around the notion of a cybersecurity rating, this is going to be bigger than a credit rating in the future because of this forced digitization of business that we've seen that was just accelerated by COVID. I mean, this was happening anyway. And now with what we've seen with COVID, all business, every transaction is increasingly being driven by digital capability. And there's this unseen iceberg that you're dealing with, which is the cybersecurity risk of your counterparty. So I came in thinking, hey, we're looking at governance risk. Risk metrics was looking at financial risk and liquidity risk. Credit rating agencies are looking at, again, finance and credit risk. And what everybody's missing is what's the cybersecurity risks associated with the company I'm doing business with? You know, you take it up from there to a government level, looking at critical national infrastructure. What's the risk associated with critical national infrastructure? And in fact, there was a there was a study that was recently done by Cybersecurity Ventures, and they're estimating that in 2021, cybersecurity losses are going to be around about $6 trillion, going up to $10.5 trillion by 2025. So this is, this is becoming as material as any other risk that we're dealing with. $6 trillion. That's a big number. We're playing in a big market here, and maybe that's part of the answer to my next question. But this is your first time as a CEO, and I want to ask what that's like. I can remember recruiting you. You were in a good position. You took some convincing. What was it about BitSight that excited you enough to decide, hey, I want to do this? And maybe, you know, you've touched on it already, but define for us, you know, how you think about the BitSight business. What's the elevator pitch and what gets you excited about it? Why don't we start with the elevator pitch? And I'm I'm not pitching. I just want to put out there what the, what the well, I guess I am pitching. Hey, we already bought, we already bought, so you don't need okay. to pitch. So the, the elevator pitch, pitch for BitSight is, you know, here's an outside-in way we're assessing a huge amount of observable data on the internet that allows us to come up with a rating that gives us a sense of the risk a company might be taking from a cybersecurity perspective, and then assessing that company against a peer group, against an industry sector, and essentially giving you a ranking of of companies. So let, let me give you a very easy use case. If you have a lot of vendors which of your vendors should you be focused on from a risk, cyber risk perspective? Who should you engage with? Who should you onboard more quickly? If you're looking at yourself, you can look at your entity map and figure out which entities have I got risk in? How do I report on my risk to the board or to an investor? So, you know, I came in thinking this industry is at a tipping point right now. How can I help move it beyond the tipping point? And a couple of examples of things we've done in the last couple of years, which will sort of bring to light why this is much more than, oh, hey, you know, let's think about cybersecurity as this 
very specialist part that a company should be focused on. Moody's invested, as you said, $250 million in the company because they believe that in the future, cybersecurity ratings is going to be an important criteria to take into account from a credit rating perspective. We signed on with a company called Glass Lewis that does proxy research in advance of AGMs to allow institutional investors to vote on the board, the CEO compensation, shareholder rights, etc. They've now introduced cybersecurity as a criticality of governance that investors should take into account when engaging with the companies that they've invested in. And we've seen a huge move towards insurance companies when they're looking at cyber underwriting. A lot of money was lost. We've seen this explosion of ransomware now using BidSight to assess and engage with a potential customer to understand the premiums if they're provided to, to give a premium. And then lastly, there's a very interesting move that the SEC just made in the States, putting out a proposed rule for companies to disclose on cybersecurity as they're looking for how do investors get their arms around the potential risk in their portfolio companies. I came in at this tipping point and brought a set of skills that weren't tied to cybersecurity, but were tied to this notion of governance and risk and who are the influence groups that this really matters to beyond the companies that we're selling to. It's been super timely. Again, you step into a role at a company that's already established. I'm sure you did your diligence, but were there surprises when you came into the role? And curious what maybe some of those were. My perspective to anyone stepping into a CEO role is, be prepared for the surprises because there are definitely going to be surprises there for you. And for me, you know, this was more about a quality company that was growing fast and the need to put a team in place that could scale with, with the company. And that's, I think, one of the hardest things to do is to make decisions around people. The one piece of advice I would give is you can always move faster than you think you can. And you're always going to end up looking in the rearview mirror thinking, why didn't I do that more quickly? You know, I came and I, it was interesting. You were part of my interview process. I had 23 interviews. Obviously, some of them were multiple times with various people. And no one asked me what I would do in a global recession. Right. In a, in a global recession plus pandemic. And we launched into March, April. And it looked that like- That was my next question for you, but I just didn't get to it. Okay. <laughs> it looked like the markets were melting down and no one was allowed in the office. And it was like, wow, what, really? What happened? That was a big surprise. It really comes to finding a team of people that you think are going to be able to represent the company, not where you are today, but in the future, making sure that there's a high degree of cohesion across that team. I mean, it's like we're very proud and that we'll mind for conflict. But the moment we leave the meeting room, we're going to link arms and it's a team. And then the other thing, which I don't think is talked about enough, which I, I believe is intrinsically important to building teams and companies is humility. And the idea that winning is a team sport and you're not looking for people who want to talk their own story. They should be talking about it takes a village and we need to do this together. And that's really what we focused on at BitSight is quality people who are highly cohesive and recognize that it takes a team to win, not an individual. Given, you know, you talked about team to the extent you had to make some team changes at the executive level, how did you do that in a way to try to preserve momentum and remove as much disruption as possible in that process? One thing we all have to recognize is when you have a momentum company with a strong brand, you can make changes and that momentum is going to stay there. Again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on about you know, pace of change. Don't underestimate how quickly you can move. 
The other thing that is critical when you're looking at changing the DNA of an executive team is you, you need to be open, you need to be transparent, you need to do things the right way, and you need to look after people, even if it ends up being a stepping off point. That's the sort of thing that the rest of the team are observing, the market season hears about, and make sure that you're not going to have any headwinds as you start to rebuild that organization. But it definitely took time. A senior level hire is something you don't want to make a mistake. And this is someone who's representing the company internally and externally. So it's critical from an internal culture perspective, as well as getting the person who you know is going to be helping to drive, whether it's product market fit or engineering or being an external face of the company to the marketplace. Well, I want to revisit the question I didn't ask in your interview process about the global pandemic. You started and literally like, I think 30 days later, we're in a global pandemic. You did a great job, I would say, playing defense because we didn't know what the future was going to look like. When you have uncertainty about the future, then you want to batten down the hatches and make sure that you don't in any way compromise what could be a really bright future. But we're in a transition. Or maybe we, we already transitioned from what I'd call playing defense to back to playing offense. And the company is really performing at an extremely high level. And I'm curious what that transition was like going from playing defense to playing offense. Sometimes Ben Horowitz called it in his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things life during wartime to peacetime. I prefer the kind of defense to offense view. And it really feels like you guys are playing offense now. So I'm curious what that transition was like, how you engineered it, how you made sure everyone was on the same page. We went into the pandemic at a point of transition at the company, which also sort of is unsettling for, for employees and, and customers. And then we got hit by COVID. And what we did was we, we zeroed in on one thing, which was the single most important thing for us to focus on is gross retention. If you can drive gross retention, you know that you're going to get your expansion and drive your net. You know that you've got a product market fit that is working, and you know that you can repeat what you're doing with your current customers to new business. We really zeroed in on our customers. We also we had something we called the COVID offer where our license includes – a fee for each additional company that you want to add to your license if you're looking at your third-party ecosystem or if you're looking at your your own company and your subsidiaries. And we said to every company that was a customer, we're not going to limit you. There is no additional fee. You can look at as many of your customers as you want, as many of your entities as you want. It's on us because we recognize this is a difficult time and we want to stand by you. And, you know, at the same time, we were really working to become a trusted advisor to our customers. So we focused the first year of, of the pandemic in 2020 on really solidifying our base. And then as we came out of that, we didn't then just turn around and say, okay, now you've got to pay for all the licenses. We started to have elegant conversations about, okay, how do we expand the relationship with our current customers? The other thing we did was we spent a lot of time looking at the data and analytics around our customer segments, which ones were working effectively, where we were investing, what kind of return we were getting from that investment, and started to shift our allocation of dollars and go to market around to really start to go after the areas where we saw the highest level of return for BitSight. And we expanded the go-to-market team quite aggressively. So we, you know, we went from this defense, gross retention orientation, getting close to our customers, and over time started scaling up the sales organization and getting much more sophisticated about targeted selling and content marketing alongside where we were seeing the opportunity. It's been awesome to watch as you guys have 
taken a great business and reaccelerated. We're not the only ones who noticed. In last year, we referred to it earlier, you received a $250 million investment, strategic investment from Moody's. Just a huge investment and a very meaningful commitment from a large and important company in the world and, and an important commitment from BitSight as well. In my time, Steve, lots of companies I've worked with have tried to forge strategic deals and talked about it and put groundwork in, but very difficult to drive those types of deals to fruition has been my experience. And yet you were able to drive this deal, bring it together, and feels like it's got a lot of potential and already delivering for you. So can you talk a little bit about how it came to be, how you drove it to make sure that you got to the finish line and, and now how you're managing it? to make sure you get the success you want out of it? There's a couple of things that I would call out about a strategic like that. I mean, first of all, it's, it's not straightforward when you've got primarily VC or private equity as your shareholder base to have a strategic come in. There was so much industrial logic behind this that everyone sat up and said, yes, we, we get it, right? You're, you're in the rating market. You want to be bigger than a credit rating agency. Here's a credit rating agency saying you're important and this is what we see as a, a key part of our direction of travel. So a couple of learnings I had from the relationship with Moody's. I mean, one is people really matter. You've got to have a great business and you've got to be in the right place at the right time. But you also have to have a high degree of integrity and you've got to show that you can act and operate at the level of the company that wants to invest. I don't think Moody's would have invested if they hadn't interacted with a senior team, a bid site that they felt, hey, this is a high pedigree senior executive team. So there was definite synergy there in terms of culturally how we felt we work with the team from Moody's and they're terrific people. Second is these kind of things don't happen overnight. This predates, it actually predates me. There'd been a dialogue with Moody's two years before I started, a recognition and a continued dialogue after that. Third, Moody's actually had a, were investing in with a, another partner, a cybersecurity it's called CRQ. It's about cyber risk quantification. How do you put a dollar value on cyber risk, which was an area we were looking at going into. So at the same time that they invested, we acquired their startup and became their key provider of cybersecurity data across all of Moody. So you have three things. You've got a market that's important to them, a team that they trust, a long-term relationship that we could work on. And a commitment from both sides that we would provide and, and they would use the data that BitSight was creating. And now today, how do you resource a relationship like that with such a large company to make sure you drive the value out of it that you want to drive? You've got to be careful when you land a company like this because they are demanding. Careful what you wish for, yeah. Yeah, they are fastidious. They absolutely focus on the quality of what you're providing. And we've had to pivot a few people to, to make sure that we absolutely deliver for for Moody's. So it's definitely an expensive undertaking and you need to have a very clear product plan in place before you, you make any kind of commitment because the last thing you want to do is under-deliver. Yeah, I always like to say that you know, these trusted relationships are like a Fabergé egg. If you drop it once, it breaks into a million pieces. Good luck trying to glue it all back together. I'd much rather exceed expectations than under-deliver in a situation like this. And, and that's what we did. You know, we have a, a terrific head of product and GM of our businesses who was really meticulous about ensuring there was complete clarity around the expectations and what it would take us to deliver. I like the Fabergé egg visual. <laughs> Treat it with care. One thing that strikes me as really interesting about the BitSight business is the ratings data, it just can be used in so many different ways. There's probably several hundred million dollar plus 
businesses that you've yet to even start to go after, let alone build with this data. So the good news is there's lots you could go do. The bad news is there's lots you could go do. How do you think about prioritization in a world like this? Really curious how you're trying to manage that. Our toughest meetings are product prioritization meetings where we're trying to allocate capital internally. You and I have talked about us being capacity bound, not opportunity bound. So it really is a difficult balance. And we have very vigorous discussions about the opportunities ahead and what our expectations are. And our executive team have to clearly demonstrate and stand behind the opportunities that we're going to launch. The other thing that I would caution everyone to do, it's very easy to get wrapped up in, hey, here's the new play, here's the new opportunity. One, you've got to make sure that you have really thought about that opportunity, what it's going to take, cost of entry, can you go to market team, handle it? Is it a snap into to your current business model? Because things can spin out of control pretty quickly. Two is don't take your eye off your core bread and butter. Your core business needs its own set of innovation and advancement and making sure that you stay relevant. And three, every company has some level of technical debt. Don't let the technical debt get ahead of you because you, if you're going to be successful and you're going to grow, you're going to need to scale, which means that you have to have had the investment in the underlying platforms and, and capabilities. So, you know, as a founder or a CEO, you're really looking for a balance of solving for what your current business is, market demands that are pulling you maybe in a different direction, and ensuring that you're not starving in any way the underlying platform and capabilities as you run at a new opportunity. And I don't think we're perfect. I don't think anyone's perfect at it, but it's a constant balance and iteration. We have a plan of record in terms of our product and engineering focus. And we meet quarterly and really have a a sort of deep dive into this. You don't set it and forget it. It's a constant iteration. And if something comes in from left field, you know, a major multi-million dollar opportunity, we're really going to vet that out and make sure that it is a multi-million dollar opportunity, that it will pay back and that it's something that's scalable for the company. You have to be prepared to say no as, you know, the ultimate arbitrator on product prioritization. So it's, I think that's one of the the areas where we definitely get the tension in the room, Glenn. I like the idea of don't set it and forget it. It sounds like you guys are, you have a plan, but you reevaluate it frequently. Yeah. And the other thing you, you need to do is, okay, once, if you've launched on something, you need to track it and make sure that it is actually delivering. And you need to be prepared to say, we're going to walk away from this at any point. There's no point in continuing to push yourself down a road that isn't going to get you the kind of payback that you expected when there are other opportunities out there all the time. Mm, Yeah. So keep that bar, keep the bar high and don't make assumptions. Talk to us about the biggest gaps you're seeing in the company now. What comes next? What are you working on? And are these things you'll, you'll try to holes, you'll try to fill through organic or inorganic means and how you think about that? Maybe I'll start off by saying, here's what keeps me awake at night in terms of gaps is company engagement. Right. In this world of location independence, where, you know, we have some people in the office, some people not, some people hybrid. How do you keep that esprit de corps and culture and sense of mission at the company? And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I mean, it's almost like the pendulum has swung from you've got to be in the office five days a week to we, the company, has to create compelling events that bring people together and celebrate the DNA of the company. So, you know, we're rethinking our office space. We're putting out a lot of both web-based content, but increasingly looking at hosting team meetings, quarterly business reviews, strategy sessions in the office where we get people together and, and collaborate. And our new offices are really about community 
and those kind of rooms where you're going to come together with your colleagues with little breakout Zoom rooms because everyone still has to jump on a Zoom meeting. You can't be in an open plan office anymore because at some point you need that Zoom meeting. So one of the biggest gaps for me is is just making sure we keep our engagement at a high level and we, we track it twice a year. And that's one of the key people goals for my team is making sure that our employee engagement stays very high. One of the other things we've done for employees is, and this might sound unusual for a sort of engineering sales oriented company, is to say the number one focus for us is our people. And the thinking, if we look after our people, they're going to look after our customers who will look after the company and we're all going to do well. So this notion of really focused people and engagement as we go through this continued waves of pandemic and people feeling anxious and in some cases isolated, the company does become that community. So that's one. And there is another thing I'd love to surface. It is so hard to hire a CMO right now. You and I have had this conversation. I mean, I started the, the talk today talking about the digitalization of business and how that's affecting companies from the increased exposure to cybersecurity risk. The other outcome of the digitalization of business is the role of marketing has changed. Customers now want to do research themselves. They want to understand the market, and then they want to reach out to the company that they want to talk to. So it's beholden on SaaS companies to increasingly start creating high-value content that is going to resonate with their customers and add value to their customers and prospects, and then look at, you know, how do we get this out and how do we build our brand and our storytelling out? So the role of the CMO has now become a very multifaceted role of someone who is a storyteller and can build a narrative, who is a product marketer, who can handle demand gen and can handle digital marketing. It's multifaceted and there isn't one person that has it all. And you've really got to try work hard to find someone who can bring a number of those capabilities with a culture that fits into your company and build a team around. And we've struggled with this. I think we're, we're quite close right now, but There is a dearth of marketers who can operate in this new world of digital and SaaS and a sort of reshaping of of go-to-market. And I'm sure you've seen it as well across your portfolio companies. Super difficult. And as more and more companies kind of become product-led or at least the market becomes much more product-sensitive when they choose to work with companies or not, the role of marketing changes, as you say, and so it's, it's just fundamentally changed the job, changed that function and how it needs to operate. And yeah, I think like the rules are still being written. So not easy to find folks who can really knock the ball out of the park as it relates to marketing these days. Not surprised to hear you say that that's been one of the tougher hires for you. I want to ask a little bit about the company scaling very nicely. You're, you're a big company today already. You know, you're working with lots of very large customers. You've got thousands of customers yourself and businesses scaling, I think and hope that being a public company is on your radar. And curious, like, as you look into your crystal ball and think about what you think you need to do, what's on your hit list before you're a public business, what are you thinking about these days? Here's what I'm thinking about is, well, first of all, how volatile can the markets be? (laughs) I'm like, enough already. What I'm really thinking about, and I've heard this from several people who have been through IPOs or have been on the board of companies that have been through through IPOs, is it's never too early to start getting ready. The worst thing would be you're closing, you've got your S1, you're closing in on a potential offering date, and you're still struggling to get the board in place, you know, get your governance practices in place. 
you haven't had a consultant come in and do a IPO readiness study with your finance organization and make sure all of your controls are in place. The way I'm thinking about this, is, and we're, we're not rushing it going public, by the way, Glenn. I mean, we it's it would be a great event if it would have happened. The focus for the CEO or the founder has to be building a company that is going to succeed in the long term, building a great company that attracts people where they want to work, building a company that can keep and grow its customer base. If you do that, all good things will follow. So, you know, I'm very focused with our team on let's ensure that the number one goal for all of us is a sustainable company that's going to be around for the long term. Uh, with rapid growth, great unit economics, increasing customer base, rapidly accelerating ARR, all that good stuff. I do think that an, an IPO is important for us, and ideally it would happen in the next couple of years. And the, the reason why is we have employees who've been on the company for a long time. We've got long-term investors. You've got the opportunity to get more aggressive with your M&A once you're, you're in the public markets. You're transparent. It's a great PR event. There are some people that would rather work at a public company. So there's a number of drivers for, for wanting to do it. The key for me is just to make sure that we, I don't want it to be a chaotic event that's distracting the company from its path forward. I want to make sure that we have a plan in place and it becomes something to celebrate as part of that journey, as opposed to trying to shift heaven and earth as you as you head towards a date. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to that day, but I really respect that you're investing so heavily in getting there so that it's just another day when it happens. And the day after you're equally prepared to continue to deliver on the value you're espousing, which is great. All right, Steve, we're going to put you on the hot seat now. It's time for the speed round. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. What book or article would you recommend to founders? This is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Pearlroth. I know you know Nicole. She's terrific. She was the New York Times cybersecurity lead journalist. She knows the industry inside and out, but she's got an incredible way of bringing it to life in a storytelling approach. And the book really shows you what's going on behind the scenes, what's happening at a nation state level, how you should think about hackers being hacked, paying to avoid being hacked. It's a great read. If cybersecurity is going to become as widespread and important as I believe it is, it just gives you a nice background of sort of what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, that's a great one. I really enjoyed Nicole's book. I just had lunch with her the other day and she's got more stories to tell. So maybe there's another book coming. She said there's not, but I'm hoping that maybe there's a sequel at some point. Next question. What advice would you give to a young Steve knowing what you know now? Yeah. You know, the biggest transition I've gone through is... Not that you're not young, Steve, but what I, <laughs> younger Steve? Yeah. Is, you know, realizing that you've I was you know, always been very competitive, but the transition I certainly found as getting into the CEO seat is it's really all about other people and to put them first. I talked a little bit about humility earlier on, but, you know, to make sure that you're giving other people a chance to shine. And I, I definitely think of a young Steve as probably a little bit too determined in in driving himself forward rather than sort of stepping back and, and making sure to put other people in the limelight. So that would certainly be it. That's great. Okay. Last one. So you've been living in New York for quite some time. We have a lot of listeners in New York. Give us a favorite, maybe not well-known, but a favorite restaurant or place to eat that you love in New York. Okay, this is going to sound totally lame, Glenn, but I'm on the run a lot. And I definitely, <laughs> I'm one of those people, I know you do as well. I'm trying to stay fit and run a company. And I've got a family. I've got three three kids. One now just started at Accenture and my wife, Jenny. So 
My favorite hole in the mall is grabbing a protein shake at Equinox when I'm having a workout in the morning. Oh, the protein back. shake at Equinox. <laughs> I haven't had one of those. How lame is that? I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I, I, I'm that, actually sound, that sounds good to me. That sounds good to me. I like that answer. And I bet there's a lot of listeners who are going to like that one. Maybe there's going to be a, a surge in protein shakes at Equinox coming after, after this, this episode launches. Steve. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Lots of wisdom here that is transferable to many other situations. And I know that people listening are going to love this episode and learn a lot from it and also be rooting for BitSight and you. The future looks really bright. I'm one of those people rooting for you and can't wait to see what happens next. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, Glenn. And look forward to seeing you at Equinox. (laughs) Sounds great. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.